Trust me when I say that it is fantastic to be in Denver today because it's about 92 degrees in New Orleans and when the pilot on the plane announced what the temperature here in Denver would be, our, our whole crew started applauding um, before we even took off. So it's great to be here. Admittedly, this lecture might seem odd to a lot of you who are here to hear something about economics or economic freedom per se. Um, being an economist and going to things like cocktail parties and dinners with friends is awkward, uh, especially when you're the sort of economist that, that I am or maybe Alex is. Um, people think that, oh, you're an economist, so what should I invest in? What's going to happen to interest rates? What stocks are going to go up? Um, well, first of all, that's not really the sort of economist that I am. And second of all, if I knew any of that information, I wouldn't share it with you. Uh, nor would I have to sort of fly to Denver to give lectures. Um, but I would be fabulously wealthy, and that's about it. Um, instead, uh, whereas economics is interested in the efficient and rational allocation of goods and services in society, how it is that society produces and distributes goods and services amongst the conditions of scarcity. Um, political economy takes that question and the mechanics of efficiency, the mechanics of rational choice, downward sloping demand curves, curves optimizing behavior, etc., and we apply it to this question of providing optimal governance. In other words, political economy is concerned with what is the proper role of government. Now, my presentation here today uh, is focused on what the potential conceit of this debate, uh, what, what problems might be associated with this. In other words, um, when we ask the question, what is the proper role of government, uh, we basically concede uh, a legitimate role of government to do certain things. And we presume a certain type and form of government, a technique with which we do the governing. Um, whereas in traditional production processes of, say, pizza, for example, those things are up for grabs, right? Um, you can get goat cheese pizza. You can get pizza made in a brick oven or a wood oven. Um, all of the techniques and types of production are up for grabs. Whereas when we constrain ourselves to a more narrow question of how much pizza do we get, right? we're assuming away where we're going to order it from or what sort of toppings we're going to get. When we focus narrowly on the question of what is the proper role of government and to what extent should government regulate the economy or our economic freedom or our personal freedoms, we consent that there is a type and technique of government that we take for granted. And we sort of take that off of our debate table. And I want to sort of push that a little bit and bring it back onto the table and ask critically, well, what types of institutions promote um, arrangements amongst individual uh, market participants that lead to a society, in Smith's words, of trucking, bartering, and exchanging, as opposed to raping, pillaging, and plundering. And so many of you have probably heard of the, the concept of the prisoner's dilemma. And so my research, I, I call it the imprisoner's dilemma, because the techniques of government mainly are criminal justice system and the mechanisms of formal institutionalized law enforcement uh, is, I think, a lot of these techniques that are taken off the table, so to speak. Um, and and it's, it's the process of centralizing and monopolizing those techniques that I think can be analyzed with toolkits of what we would call um, Austrian and public choice political economy, mainly the insights of knowledge problems. Does the government have the appropriate types of knowledge to determine the optimal amount of law enforcement in society. And public choice type problems, is the government properly incentivized to produce law enforcement in a way that uh, promotes trucking, bartering, and exchanging as opposing to raping, pillaging, and plundering? So in the, in the field of political economy, the, the sort of starting point for any, if you were to take a class in the history of political economy, you're probably going to have to read this book by this guy called Thomas Hobbes, and the book's name is Leviathan. Hobbes presents the major question of political economy to be how to resolve the state of nature. Um, the sort of 
iconic quote from Hobbes is, the state of nature, when, when without a condition of some form of government, is that each man is in a constant state of war of all against all. And life is nasty, brutish, and short. So Hobbes proposes that in order to resolve these challenges of the fact that each individual is constantly pitted against one another, that we would need some sort of exogenous enforcement device, some sort of last line of authority, some sort of government to be a rule definer and rule enforcer so that people would play by the appropriate rules, that we would respect person and property. Hobbes is right about the state of nature. But I'm skeptical that his solution right, answers all of the really meaningful questions, mainly the types and qualities of governance in addition to quantities. Um, how is Hobbes right about the state of nature? Well, lots of people agree on this. Right? Adam Smith is one. Right? Adam Smith, basically, in his pithy quotes of trucking, bartering, and exchanging versus raping, pillaging, and plundering, he delineates all of human behavior. He says we're constantly confronted with a choice. We can do one or the other. We can voluntarily associate with each other, or we can coercively associate with one another. To a large extent, the biggest challenge for people um, to realize is that the default condition of humanity is miserable. In other words, if you were to look at, say, the history of economic growth in the world. I tell my students, you can learn everything you need to know about economic history from watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. GDP, stuff, it's basically a flat, almost zero line for most of world slash human history. Until circa industrial revolution, and you get this kind of hockey stick effect. Whoa, stuff. We never had this before. You can eat it, you can wear it, you can keep yourself protected from the elements, so on and so forth. In other words, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, Bill and Ted, two youths from Southern California, go back in time and they pick up various famous historical characters. They pick up Socrates, Socrates, and they also pick up Abe Lincoln. Now, the time length between Socrates and Bill and Ted, 1980s California, is very, very large compared to the time length between Abe Lincoln and Southern California. Yet, the lifestyles and general problems of day-to-day -day routine shared between Socrates and Abe Lincoln is very, very similar compared to the lifestyles and day-to-day -day routines that you and I have and Abe Lincoln. In other words, Abe Lincoln and Socrates would be like, yeah, I stepped in horse manure today. And they'd be like, yeah, I know, me too. You and I have no sphere of empathy with that. Right? We Google searched on our smartphones to figure out like, where to avoid traffic. They can't, even, they can't even conceptualize that challenge. So in other words, for most of human history, we've had a really difficult time resolving the challenge of the state of nature well enough to bring about an abundant system of trade, exchange, barter, and division of labor. In other words, the scale is always tipped in favor of raping, pillaging, and plundering, as opposed to trucking, bartering, and exchanging. And this makes sense in economic terms. If any two of us were to come across one another in isolation, in the middle of the woods, and I noticed that you had a slice of pizza and I do not, I can do two things. I can punch you in the face for the slice of pizza, or I can offer you something of my own in exchange for it. Well, if I say, okay, well, I have a tie, and I'll give you the tie for pizza. Well, first of all, I've got to conveniently have something that he wants. And he might think that my tie is ugly. Secondly, right, in the, in the event that I give him my tie, at the end of the trade, I don't have a tie. I have pizza, but no tie. In the event that I just punch him in the face, I have Thai plus pizza, right? That's preferable. In that sense, we're constantly inclined to rape, pillage, and plunder as opposed to truck barter and exchange. Another great book that I highly recommend everyone look at, and it's, it's less old than Hobbes or Smith that we've talked about this, thus far. A large part of my job is basically just being an advertiser for good books. Um, Paul Seabright 
wrote a book recently called The Company of Strangers. And the sort of beginning chapter, he's really emphasizing this facet of human association, of how challenging the conditions of cooperation can really be. And so what he starts off by saying is that, how many, do we have any brothers and sisters or relatives in this room? No. Do we have any? Oh, okay. So you guys are sisters. Yes, sisters? Okay. Aside from them, right, everyone else, um, the reality of the situation is, is if we had any of your, like, Cro-Magnon ancestors here, right, your father's father, your father's 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 father, all the way back to, like, Neolithic you, you and Neolithic you have more in genetic common than you and the person sitting next to you. Even though Neolithic you lived in very different circumstances. In biological world, the degree of genetic diversity within our species that we have in this room, in conjunction with the peace and nonviolence that we have in this room, is absolutely remarkable. No other species can, can, can compare. If we were all dogs or apes, we, all of the men would be fighting with one another for the pizza and the women. Not necessarily in that order. Um, it's, it's, we take peace and cooperation for granted in society. Um, another um, sort of example of this, a friend of mine in, in graduate school, he's now a PhD student at uh, University of Arizona studying philosophy and economics. And he, he said to me one day, he was like, you know what's really weird? Sex. It's like the weirdest thing. You know, there's people, they have parts, and they like get excited and rub those parts together, and then it's all messy and stuff. It's a really weird phenomenon. And I said, well, I mean, as an economist, you've always got to ask, compared to what? Compared to what? If you think about our closest genetic relatives in the animal kingdom, our sexual interactions are actually pretty calm. In other words, if when human women uh, went through menstruation processes comparable to like orangutans and, and, and other ape species closely related to humans, I mean, in those processes, like their buttocks swell three times their size, they secrete odors that the men can detect from miles away and cause them to like jump up and down and scream and shout a lot. It would be difficult to like make photocopies in like your office setting under those sort of circumstances. The entire division of labor would be upheated by these sort of biological impediments. So again, if we, this room, if we walked by this room and we see all the degrees of genetic diversity, people from different countries and backgrounds and families, and then we walk by another room with the same amount of genetic diversity and the same amount of people in it, but they were fighting with one another tooth and nail. All the men were beating the snot out of each other, trying to get favor with the women and jumping over each other and pulling hair and, and, and punching each other in the face to get the pizza in the next room. And we walked by, we'd say, that room's weird. But in actuality, what we should do is look at this room and say, this is remarkable. It's weird. It's weird in human history. It's weird in biological perspective. And again, uh, in economic terms, we have this sort of formal arrangement to understand this challenge called the prisoner's dilemma. Right? Um, if, we if we cooperate with one another, we get high payoffs. But defection seems affordable. If I punch you in the face, I don't have to give up my tithe. Right? So I would get benefits and you would get losses. Inversely, if you, do, if you defect and I cooperate, you get benefits and I get losses. And this tends to a condition where we would both defect against one another. But that's actually the worst of both worlds. Because while you're trying to hit me for my tie and I'm trying to hit you for your pizza, oftentimes like, we drop the pizza and we rip the tie. And it's a bummer. This sounds very, like, normatively charged, right? Uh, hitting, rights, who owns what. But economists in recent years have actually become very good at sort of sterilizing that environment and trying to find out, well, can people or do people act according to these payoffs without all of the sort of 
moral backstory. In other words, instead of cooperation and defect, this very charged language, if you walked into a room and there were buttons, blue and red, right, and you're told that there's another person in a room just like yours, two buttons, blue and red, if you hit blue and he hits blue, you both hit blue, you both get two bucks. Cool. But if you hit red and he hits blue, well, then you get $3 and he gets nothing. Ah, but if he hits red and you hit blue, he gets three, you get nothing. And if you both hit red, you're only going to get a dollar apiece. Economics, math, says that we'll both hit red. Right? Well, three is greater than two. I want three. One is greater than zero. Right? If, he, if I think he's going to hit red, then I definitely want to hit red. If I think he's going to hit blue, I still want to hit red. Because I'll either get three over two or one over zero. Well, George Mason University, we have what's called experimental economists. Uh, Vernon Smith won a Nobel Prize for, for developing this technique. The room with the buttons. Right? I could have thought of that. Um, and basically, we take undergrads and we pay them to play these games, blue and red buttons. Um, and it took a certain kind of stupid economist, the first time we played this game, to be baffled that the rates of cooperation, right, both hitting blue, were higher than zero. Significantly higher than zero. Right? Not like, oh, once we got them to hit blue on accident. But rather, it, it wasn't over 50%. It was about 20 to 30%, depending upon the study that you're looking at, depending upon the conditions, depending upon the, the controls that they use. But you got significant but minor rates of cooperation, even without any sort of exogenous changing of the rules. Because right? Hobbes' version is that, okay, well, what we've got to do is punish defection. We've got to have an ex someone outside of the traditional game, a, a monopoly, government enforcement, come in and change the payoffs. Right? We have to have some court of law come in and say, well, if you defect, if you punch people in the face, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to go to jail. You're going to get punished to the point where we'll incentivize cooperation. But when we ran this experiment, well, we got like 20 to 30% of cooperation, even without threatening anyone. Well, then we start changing the game a little bit. Hmm. First thing we did was we let the people talk to each other for about 20 seconds before they would play. So let's say you and I were going to go in and play this game. What's your name? Matt. Matt, I'm Dan. Nice to meet you. Do you know why you're here? We're going to play this like experiment for this. For, I hear they pay you. Isn't that cool? Matt, all right. Well, okay. Oh, they're calling my name. All right, later. I go in. And then they explain to me, well, Matt's in the other room, and he's going to hit blue or red. I go, oh, Matt, he seemed cool. You know, blue. Cooperation jumped from like 15 20 30% to like 70%, like significant majority. Huge gains in cooperation just from chatting, saying hello, handshake, wink at a smile. You know? Seems remarkable. When I try to teach the, the prisoner's dilemma to my students in undergrad, I, uh, it's usually after the midterm, and I take out two students, and I tell them to go outside and not to say anything to one another. And then I bring them back in one at a time, and I accuse them of cheating on the midterm in cahoots with one another. And we walk through the whole example. Like, you can do yourself a favor if you rat out the other guy. They get really freaked out. It's funny. Um, but every now and then, I pick poorly. Every now and then, I pick people like sisters. Well, one time it was my own fault. They were twins. Um, <laughs> you know, they easily did not defect, right? They were like, Professor D'Amico, I've been with my sister, my twin, all week. I know she didn't cheat. I didn't cheat. You're talking crazy talk. Get out of here, right? Other times, I'll pick fraternity brothers, right? They've got this whole heavy lifting system of like fraternalism and whatnot, things I don't really understand. Um, but they, they don't defect against each other either. If you pick competing fraternities, they defect always. Right. 
So there's a predictability, a sort of structure to human relationships that map themselves into the, the laboratory settings. This is Vernon Smith's sort of uh, conclusions now, because a lot of people have interpreted experimental economics to, well, oh, you got some cooperation, therefore game theory, prisoner's dilemma, that's all stupid. And he's like, Vernon's response is, no, you ninny, we're social people. You know, Culture doesn't get left in the waiting room of the laboratory settings, but rather it stays with us. It's very difficult to, to, to purge all of that social learning that, that we enjoy over the course of society just to get experimental results. Right? In other words, it's like we go to kindergarten and we're expected to play in groups and then it takes a certain stupid type of economist to be like, it's remarkable that they're not just evil and killing each other. Right? 18 years of, of continual team play for one sort of bizarre blue-red button example to like dismiss all of economic science. So in other words, what I want to sort of think about is, well, let's get back to this quality of governance as opposed to just the optimal size or scope of government and ask if we can get such significant returns from wink and a smile handshake and compared to Hobbes' alternative, a fully empowered monopolized rule enforcer, because I would argue that there's a lot of costs in our contemporary criminal justice system uh, and inefficiencies from largesse and um, sort of excessive bureau bureaucratic enforcement that we could probably do without. And if we had cheaper alternatives, we should be investigating those and thinking about them. And I'm not the first person to say this. Um, this is a picture of Alexis de Tocqueville. I really like him a lot because I think he's like the world's first hipster. Um, Tocqueville, most people know, wrote a book called Democracy in America. Uh, it was so good he had to write it twice. It's like two volumes. It's big. Um, Democracy in America is actually one of the world's first examples of ob observational social science, which is sort of fancy talk for hanging out. Tocqueville came from France and hung out in colonial America for nine months-ish. Just watched what people do, took notes, went home, locked himself in an attic, wrote Democracy in America. What was his conclusion? Well, the puzzle, his motivation for doing this, so to speak, was that America was remarkably cooperative, remarkably productive at this very early stage of its development. Um, and yet, uh, the rest of the developed world at that time, England, France, Germany, etc., they were sort of mild in political upheavals, uh, economic recessions. The world was going crazy, and yet here America was, a nation of farmers, right? People who dug in the dirt all day. A hodgepodge collection of strangers. People who shouldn't, according to all conventional wisdoms, be able to get along with one another. Yet, they were, we were sort of kicking butt on the frontier in, in economic and peaceful terms compared to the rest of the world. So that was the puzzle, what, what's explaining this. And Tocqueville comes back and he, and he says, you know what? You know what they're really good at? Associating, joining, civil association, the art of a civil association. Uh, Tocqueville uses metaphors like craftsmanship and artisanry to describe how it is that people join groups, churches, clubs, and then those organizations serve as an institutional foundation to promote other forms of exchange, cooperation, trust, bonds. Most people know that about Tocqueville. What a lot of people fail to realize is that Tocqueville came to the United States with a very different intention in mind. Him and Gustave de Beaumont were sent by the government of France in order to investigate our penitentiary system. In other words, Tocqueville writes a book before Democracy in America called On the Penitentiary System in the United States and its Applicability to France, co-authored with Gustave de Beaumont. The ma majority of his nine months that he spent here were in our prison facilities at the time. Now, why was he sent to do this? Again, the puzzle, why is America doing so well at the early time, was the same. But I think what this represents is the presumption 
of the majority of governments at the time, to think that it was our formal exogenous law enforcement institutions which were promoting this degree of exceptionalism in the early period of America. They thought that the reason why America was getting so much done was because we had innovated a new type of governance, a new technique of how to enforce our laws. In fact, Tocqueville and Beaumont were not the only people who were sent to do that. Every major developed nation was sending people to either the United States or Britain because we were the only people who were doing this type of enforcement the way we were doing it. What way was this? Sorry. Well, in the United States, we were the first place to begin this architectural form of the Panopticon, designed by Jeremy Bentham in the late 1700s, aimed explicitly at, again, overcoming this form of prisoner's dilemma. If only we could observe and isolate each individual person so that we knew exactly when they got out of line and, and strayed towards punching in the face as opposed to mutually cooperating. So we could gauge and delineate a punishment in terms of time, especially geared to that person. We can induce a system of total compliance. Bentham was, was concerned with what's called the uh, principal agent problem. Right? Principal agent problem is basically summed up in uh, a job ain't nothing but work. Um, in other words, when my boss walks by my office, I always pretend like I'm really busy. Right? Makes me look good. Once he gets past, I go back to sort of, I don't know, surfing YouTube and watching Jersey Shore. Um, most people slack at work, or would if they could. And so Bentham wanted to design a system of a, a, a design house to have manufacturing done in so that you could, the, the linemen could watch all of the workers. And then it was also applied to penitentiary systems. Well, governments in the United States and, and uh, England found it most convenient to design uh, panopticons explicitly. Uh, they had sort of three-dimensional, multi-story units in, in large urban populated environments, uh, so you can fit lots of inmates uh, stacked on top of each other. Or in more uh, rural and less developed areas, you could, you could lay it all in one single story, but with a, a hub-and-spoke model. So the warden would sort of sit in a central office and then look down all of the hallways to make sure that inmates were behaving uh, appropriately. Um, this one in particular is Maine State or Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Uh, Al Capone was housed in this facility, and they have his, his cell still historically preserved. It's nicer than my apartment. Um, so, again, every developed nation was sending representatives to sort of look and hang out in these type of facilities and see, well, what is it that is going on here that is driving, that is presumably driving prosperity. Within about a hundred, within a couple of decades, and by the end of uh, the next century, all of these major developed nations had mimicked and modeled their law enforcement according to these designs and strategies. Right? Everyone now, more or less, has incarceration as the major and ultimate form of criminal law enforcement which means that penalties for crimes are delineated in terms of time-based sentencing, again, focused on individuals. And uh, very few people took, I think, Tocqueville's insight seriously. Because Tocqueville was the only one who wrote the book and said, well, you know, you know what's really good about these things? We don't use them very much back then. So the best part about the American prison system is that it's infrequently relied upon, that there's a litany of checks and balances to assure that innocent people don't go in there. Because when you get in there, it's really gross. People are mean, and it's dark, and it's dirty. And he said it takes a certain kind of stupid to think that this cesspool of social order, this, this sort of environment of raping, pillaging, and plundering would be the source or the lifeblood of all of this truck bartering and exchanging going on. Tocqueville thought it was instead a learning process of civil association which developed the bonds of, of trust and reciprocity, much like the wink and a handshake. 
So in current economics, um, development economics has uh, this sub-literature called self-enforcing exchange that takes Tocqueville's insight, I think, very, very seriously. It says, okay, what is the absolute, the utmost potential of human cooperation without exogenous law enforcement? Can we get it so that contracts and um, exchange are enforcing on their own terms, right? To the point where we don't need an exogenous rule enforcer. And in general, um, the insights are pretty cool. It's, it's very similar to uh, my proverbial experience in, in teaching my students the prisoner's dilemma. Homogenous groups of small members, right, they have a potential for trade above zero. Right? When you have, I don't need to call the police to get my mom to keep her promises to me. At least not this year. Fraternities can do a lot of cool stuff. They can, they can get their members excited to cooperate with one another, to accomplish good things. But if you get the fraternity to be too big and have too many different types of personalities, it sort of breaks down a little bit. Um, in other words, you can, you can move on either of the margins, right? You can keep your small group but get different members, right? But so long as you have some sort of filter process or, or like shared experience, like fraternities have hazing or, or rituals that go into it, uh, or you can get a group that has very, very similar characteristics, very, very large, really big family businesses, so to speak. But if you get large groups of very, very different people, like a city, like large-scale anonymous exchange, like a real vibrant marketplace, then it's presumed that, again, we need a form of exogenous law enforcers. Well, I think, again, we've... We've at times overlooked some of the more subtle insights of, uh, of, this, uh, of these conclusions. One being that, well, first and foremost, we should admit that exogenous law enforcement might be a problem or detrimental to the effective processes that go on in small homogenous groups. In other words, uh, my first year as a professor, I was asked to be a faculty advisor for a fraternity. There's a bunch of dudes. There was like 12 of them, right? I, my school is much smaller than Metro State. Um, so these 12 kids had a fraternity. And they were very, very excited about their fraternity. But uh, come election time in the year, uh, all of them started hating each other. And they would use this elaborate process of voting for who's going to be the president and the vice president and the treasurer and the secretary. And then from the previous semester, they were accusing all of this malfeasance Right? He uh, embezzled fraternity funds and so-and-so lied or milked the vote and so, and so on and so forth. They, they were like ruining their friendships and ruining their organization. Not only that, but elections are supposed to do something. Right? The purpose of the election was so that whoever had the most sort of like leadership ability or gumption would be elected the president. But in reality, it was a group of 12 white guys upper middle income, like, at a mid-tier liberal arts university in Louisiana. Like, the range of variance between their leadership quality was about, like, that much. And yet, the costs and efforts and energy associated with going through these arduous political processes was very, very high. So what I was willing to argue was, like, even if you get the second best leader as your president, it's cheaper than going through this whole rigmarole. So the formal processes of traditional governance can be a detriment to the informal processes of small homogenous groups. We often forget that. That's one thing to keep in mind. So the other question is, is this really true? That the probability for anonymous trade in large heterogeneous society is less than zero? That we'll never be able to overcome the state of nature in order to get something like a Manhattan without formal government law enforcement. And even if that is true, then shouldn't we constantly be concerned about, well, the potentials for things like creeping totalitarianism or whatever moral hazard or incentive problems might be associated with empowering 
that very strong and unique governmental apparatus. The person who I think is doing some of the coolest work on this is a guy named Pete Leeson at George Mason University. Again, another commercial for another really good book. And he says, okay, well, admittedly, we don't have a lot of examples of wide-scale, diverse, uh, large groups trading with one another and becoming very prosperous societies. Right? We don't have a really good non-state system that meets the conditions of this cell that we can look at and understand how it is that they've overcome the prisoner's dilemma challenges. But what's the best we can do? Well, he tries to stack the deck for himself. And what he tries to do is say, okay, well, what if we could get a group of people, which is significantly big, like tens of thousands, and pretty diverse, you know, like lots of different backgrounds. And what if, what if they were all just jerks, right? Because maybe that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in our example in Alone in the Woods. Maybe it's like I'm just a nice guy and don't like punching people in the face or have no comparative advantage at doing it. But if we could get an experimental condition where everybody was a total cutthroat jerk and was open about it, right? They even like wore it as a badge of pride. Like, I beat up people way better than you beat up people. You wish you could beat up people like I beat up people. And the whole community was made up of just these people. Could we get a degree of order and self-governance as opposed to exogenous rule enforcement out of a group like that? So Leeson started reading a whole bunch of books about pirates and finds really interesting results. His book is called The Invisible Hook. It's a pun on Adam Smith's invisible hand. Right? It's called The Hidden Economics of Pirates. And what he notices is that, well, they acted according to the conditions of rational choice and downward sloping demand curves. And they would design a whole lot of very like, elaborate, complex, and sophisticated rules in order to keep peace on the boats to make sure that their pirate endeavors would maximize their profits. Right? If you're on a boat and two people get in a fight with one another and one shoots, that risks everyone's life because bullets put holes in boats and then boats sink. So there was like a self-enforcing incentive to keep peace on the boat. Furthermore, some of the he, like they, they designed elaborate constitutions. Some of the constitutions look and taste and smell a lot like the American Constitution. Hundreds of years before the American Constitution was ever written. Leeson's found evidence to even suggest that Thomas Jefferson had a copy of Blackbeard's journal, which had been published. Um, but he hasn't been able to get in touch with the historian of thought who's in ownership of it to find out whether or not it's been read. There's ways in which historians can, can tell if it has marginalia and stuff like that. Because it, it, like some of the book, when you, some of his papers, when you read it, you're sort of like, is he accusing Jefferson of plagiarizing Blackbeard? That's how close the constitutional forms that come out of these pirate contexts look like the American Constitution. They were so functional. The stakes were so high that the forms of governance had to be so good. Leeson writes another paper called The Calculus of Piratical Consent, which is a pun off of a book by James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, um, pioneers of the public choice tradition, called Calculus of Consent. And Leeson's paper demonstrates that Pirates sort of have one up on us, which is to say that where um, constitutional scholars have to punt when it comes to this question of voluntary, voluntary exchange versus coercion. Because, yeah, a couple of people signed the American Constitution, but, like, that wasn't me and it wasn't you. And so in, in a large extent, what we use is something called the social contract, which is to say there's this perceived and conceptual unanimity that by being a member of society we give a tacit consent. Pirates gave explicit consent. It was like a contract, a written contract. There was like a written contract. You like booty? 
You like raping, pillaging, and plundering? Sign on the line. You're agreeing to all of these rules. We're going to split up the booty according to this system. You, like lights out at this time. No gambling with like loose women and so on and so forth. It was like elaborate system of rules. And you would sign on the dotted line. Explicit unanimity. Now, I think that this reintroduces a challenge for Leeson between this informal and formal source of social order. Why? Because which is it? Is it that Blackbeard was a genius and wrote a great contract that lots of people wanted to sign on the dotted line? Or was it Tocqueville again, a shared experience of piracy that makes us common with one another and learn how to get along? When you have this explicit unanimity, it's hard to differentiate the two. So what I was hoping to do is find a case wherein, instead of explicit unanimity, you had zero unanimity where you had the same level of jerks, people who like to rape, pillage, and plunder, people who hate each other, people who would pride themselves on their uh, fierce responsiveness, but who have no desire to be associated with one another, who would leave their social environment if only given the opportunity. Well, the best thing I could think of was inmate societies. Right? When arrested and put in, into jails, inmates don't want to be there. Right. They would much rather leave. And there's a litany of forms of social science that came out of studying the prison experience. Well, first of all, we've said that the early designs of our most popular penal institutions are these isolating institutions. The reason for this was twofold. One was that you could calculate and hone prison sentences. But the other was to suppress the development of social order. Because there was a concern, well, if we put all the bad people in the same place and they get along, then you're going to have like a super bad grouping of people that would be a bigger threat to, so to society at large than any of the individuals were when they were isolated. So our first penal practices often involved hooding, right? Not like they would just wear a hood, but... Uh, a sack, burlap sack, that would be tied around the bottom so that inmates couldn't see one another. There would be forced silence in the facility. They modeled penitentiaries after monasteries um, to induce penitence. And economics, there's this joke about economics that you, you're walking down the street and you see a guy looking under a lamppost, and you say, oh, did you drop something? He's like, yeah, I dropped my car keys. And you say, oh, well, you dropped them right here? And he goes, no, I dropped them way over there, but this is where the light is good. Um, macroeconomics is sort of like that. We have to go where the data is good. Social science is like that more generally. Uh, in the 1930s um, was sort of like the dawn of a lot of social science, and so we were going where the light was good. Where is it that you can, like, if you were wandering the frontier like, um, like Tocqueville was, it was very difficult to get longitudinal data, right? Tocqueville came, he hung out for nine months, but he couldn't like go back years later and be like, okay, who are all the people I talked to then? There was no internet. Heaven, I, I shudder to think about it. Um, there was no uh, strong way of tracking this form of data. So what social scientists did was they said, okay, well, where is a digestible set of group a group of people where we can track over long periods of time and get good information on. Well, at the same time, we're building all of these prisons. And they said, okay, well, here's a good one. Right? The other one was also with the New Deal um, zoos. Uh, uh, with the New Deal, uh, lots of local governments got uh, money to start building public works projects, and people started building zoos. And people started wanting to put monkeys in those zoos. And, well, you know... You, you have a zoo, you've got a budget, well, put monkeys on the island. Cool. Well, where do we get monkeys? Well, what type of monkeys? Well, more of a good is preferred to less, right? So you want big monkeys and lots of them. So they would come back with lots of male monkeys, and then they'd put them on, an uh, on a monkey island and be like, okay, cool, we're, we're done. This, you can open the zoo. Yeah, that never worked really well. In fact, the monkeys would go around and, like, chop each other's testicles off. It was very ugly and messy. Um, especially if you got the monkey island too small and the population too large and only dudes. And 
there's this guy, Vanderwall, he wrote this whole book about peacemaking amongst primates. And sure enough, they use very similar like wink and handshake nods in order to overcome these challenges. But when you fabricate these artificial environments where you've isolated the genders and you've overpopulated them, social order breaks down. It looks a lot like Hobbes's nasty, brutish, and short example. In fact, Gresham Sykes, one of the early 1930s social scientists who was investigating prison environments, basically described the same conditions of prison communities. That the artificial environments created by these force constraints of overpopulation and small environmental constraints led to degradation of social order. And so he said the whole notion of rehabilitation that we had aimed at, penitence, was a failure from the bottom up. Right? Again, these machines of enforcement were just not good at doing the things that we were hoping that they would do. Rehabilitate people, make them more productive members of society, change the payoffs of raping, pillaging, and plundering to trucking, bartering, and exchanges. Interestingly enough, in the gulag and concentration camp experiences, where we see relative innocent people being incarcerated and people with shared characteristics of one's mind, um, amongst one another. We see high rates of social cooperation, exchange, uh, and, and effective means of coordinating against guards. Uh, we even see things, emergent things. There's one of, the, one of the most famous essays in economics is called The Political Economy of a POW Camp. And it discusses the emergence of commodity money systems to develop in POW inmate social environments. Uh, cigarettes get used. Current ethnographies uh, are, are becoming a bit more popular. Uh, there's this guy, uh, Marik Kaminsky, who wrote a book called The Games Prisoners Play. Kaminsky was incarcerated in the late 1980s in Soviet Poland uh, for publishing anti-communist propaganda. Um, and uh, prison facilities in Poland at the time were basically like rooms filled with dudes. Right? And yet elaborate hierarchical structures of uh, peace and cooperation would develop, where um, he figured out really quickly that even though you weren't the biggest inmate on the block, you could protect yourself by telling dirty jokes. Because if people thought you were funny, then they wanted to protect you because it was really boring on the inside. Right? And so even if you made fun of the big guy and he wanted to beat you up, everybody else would be like, dude, that was hilarious and there's no TV, so we want him around tomorrow. Um, Again, much like Leeson's example, elaborate social norms to, to resolve a variety of unique circumstantial constraints. Um, one of the most premium things in Kaminsky's environment, uh, one of the most scarce things, is clean air. This is an overpopulated room with very low, uh, what's the word, filtration and, and airflow. And so uh, farting is this real social bad. Right? It ruins everyone's day. Um, and so if you like, pass gas accidentally, people beat the snot out of you. Um, and so people had to figure out ways that, like, I mean, sometimes you just have to pass gas. And so there were these elaborate norms that you would have to sort of like announce that you were going to do it. And then everybody would do it at the same time so as to minimize the duration of the unpleasantness. Um, it's a fun read. I definitely recommend the book. Um, but so, okay, most of these examples are relatively small-knit, again. Um, and the, the social orders that are, are, are emergent, they're not great, you know? They're, they're not elaborate exchange and production techniques. They're more like coping just to get by, right? Uh, a, a prison environment with less farting. That's the best we can do. Like, that, I, I wouldn't hang my hat of political economy on that, necessarily. However, I do think that there's some really interesting things that occur um, in various uh, prison experiences. This is a, a video that went viral online um, from the Philippines. This was actually the most uh, severe maximum security facility in Cebu, uh, the island in the Philippines where this was filmed. Uh, rapists and, and drug dealers. It's the most violent criminals uh, who, who they were incarcerating in their facility. Um, 
Asian cultures have to do calisthenics in the morning, and so they would make their inmates do exercise routines. And the warden noticed that, well, this was the one time when the violence would be really low. So if only I could get them to like it and to continuously uh, practice and do it, then maybe we could keep the rates of violence in the facility down perpetually. And so he brought in uh, a dance instructor to teach the guys how to do it. They now self-enforce, right? They make hundreds of YouTube videos. They do lots of tracks from Sister Act. They did Soldier Boy. Um, they go on tour. Uh, they do routines with female inmates as well. Um, most of them uh, reflect back on their days of criminality and want to sort of uh, be reintroduced into traditional society. They consider it an, an entire rehabilitation uh, format. Uh, more and more of these like, very non-conventional uh, punitive techniques are being experimented with. In my state of Louisiana, we have a rodeo at the Angola prison. The, in 1970, the Angola prison facility in the United States was one of the worst in the country. Massive rates of inmate on inmate violence, massive rates of, of guard and, and inmate violence. Um, they implemented a rodeo system. It's a ranch where inmates work alongside cattle throughout the year and then seasonally put on a rodeo. This is a true statement about what occurs there. Monkeys riding dogs herding goats onto cars. It's pretty amazing. Uh, inmates compete for cash prizes. One, uh, one, it's called game of poker, and inmates sit around a table, and then a bull runs through the table, and who's ever the last person to sit wins $5,000. Um, rates of violence and general uh, approval ratings of the facility have gone, uh, have gone up, violence down. Um, in the late 1980s, 1980s, Maine State Penitentiary in the state of Maine uh, in the United States, uh, the warden noticed, hey, um, my inmates get along really well be when they're woodworking and doing handicrafts. And there's um, a, a roadside craft show where they could sell their wares. And so there was a limitation that they couldn't have more than about $1,000 worth of capital equipment uh, to work with. And he said, well, that's a silly number. Let's just get rid of it. Let's bring it to like $25,000 worth of capital. Within six months, right, one guy bought out the cantina, the, the cafeteria of, of the facility, turned it into a profit-making enterprise, hired half of the facility. And part of the contracts of hiring people was that they couldn't fight one another. So peace and cooperation amongst the facility skyrocketed. After about a year and a half, the federal government came in, put the entire facility on lockdown for six months, and confiscated all of the capital and said they weren't allowed to do this anymore. Right? One guy, before they shut it down, was estimated to make $80,000 a year. Um, so I think that, in general, um, what we realized from investigating the prison experience is that people are adaptable to the incentives that they're placed within. And the counter example of, say, the Cebu experience, Maine State Penitentiary, et cetera, is this. These photographs were taken from what's called the Stanford Prison Experiment, uh, which was conducted by a research investigator named Philip Zimbardo. Zimbardo's book was published in 2007, and it's called The Lucifer Effect, How Good People Turn Bad. Now, this experiment was done in the late 1970s, hence the silly sunglasses and mustaches of the people in the photos. Um, but it took him so long to get over the sort of jarring emotional experience that was associated with this experiment. Zimbardo, like economists today, had to use undergraduates for his psychological experiment. And he brought in a bunch of undergrads from Stanford and delineated them into inmates and guards. And within three days, bad things happened. The guards were basically torturing the designated inmates, right? People started throwing feces at one another. Um, there, there was a potential riot on their hands, and none of it was real. They were hanging out in classrooms in the Stanford Psychology Department. And it took the faculty secretary to tell Dr. Zimbardo, you're doing something very wrong here, and you should let these boys go. Right? So whereas the Cebu Philippines took murderous drug dealers and turned them into sort of dancing Michael Jacksons, Philip Zimbardo took college, grad, college undergrads and turned them into literally poo throwers within three days. Right? Our behaviors are in large part 
driven by the incentives in which we exist within. But the potential for discovering unique ways of overcoming those challenges is infinite and varied. And so I find it just strange and disconcerting the extent to which we've embraced the ethos of formalized law enforcement in our nation. The United States currently incarcerates more individuals than any other country around the world and through time. Our rate is about a one in 100, but that rate gets far more increased when you isolate particular demographics. So amongst African American amongst African American men, it's more like one in 10. Um, this is a very, very new phenomenon. Right? So most of this growth is in, in conjunction with things like the drug war. Um, in general, uh, I get a lot of questions about, well, how would you respond to the social problems of things like crime and drug enforcement? And admittedly, I don't know, but that's sort of the power of Tocqueville's response, is that it requires social experimentation and learning to get good answers. And that's precisely the types of processes that are suppressed by the monopolized control over conflict resolution through traditional governmental forms. That's all I have for today. Thank you so much for attending. We have time for questions and answers. Well, questions at least. I don't know if I'll give good answers. Go ahead. Exactly. Uh, over a third of the growth is related to the drug war. Um, it's very difficult to disaggregate what's remnant amongst the violent crime in uh, in this trend. I mean, there's more sophisticated mappings if you go on the Bu uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics is the best place to find it. But now the majority of inmates are in four drugs in particular, and explicitly non-violent drug vi drug violations. So. Right, selling and consumption. Um, but even that remnant violent rate has grown in conjunction with the drug war. In other words, there's a variety of reasons why having prohibition policies induces more violence amongst the population. One is that it's very difficult to call the police when your drugs get stolen. So the mechanism, so when, admittedly, when people look at pirates, when people look at inmates, when people look at drug dealers, and they say, oh, well, you're looking at these cases and then trying to inform our contemporary political economy. You're saying that we should be like pirates? And I'm like, well, sort of, but no. In other words, we should understand that the potency of the violence that they use is a function of the fact that they're deemed informal and illegitimate. If you don't have a formal recourse mechanism, a court of law to go to to enforce your contracts, then you use violence as a self-enforcing constraint, right? If you know that defaulting on our contract means that, well, we're going to be bogged down in a trial and all this other stuff, then shooting is a lot more opportune. Secondly, um, whenever you, uh, you, you fight for monopoly control. The profits are so high by prohibition that uh, drug dealing gang A fights against drug dealing gang B. And lastly is what we would call Alchin and Allen effects, relative price changes. When, um, if you're a drug dealer, right, uh, stealing a ham sandwich is sort of like no big wow. Um, with mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, a lot of what you see, and three strikes are outlaws, you, we, we, we see a spike in, in shootings of cashiers. Uh, in other words, if it's your third offense uh, and you know that you will more likely get away with your crime if there are no witnesses, uh, but if you get caught for your crime, you're going to jail forever, no questions asked, then you're incentivized to, to be more violent in that crime. Um, so yeah, I think that a, lar a large part of this expansion is in particular with the drug war. However, at the international, like we're the only country who does this. We're an extreme outlier. But every country has prohibition of illegal substances. So that draws the question, well, what is it about American enforcement about the drug war that has contributed to this? And I think that that brings up issues of, again, federalism, of how it is that we empower a singular monopoly authority to decide these types of rules and rule enforcements. Everybody criminalizes drugs around the world, for the most part, but not everybody funds it and, uh, and, and subsidizes the enforcement in the techniques that we do. Uh, I saw in last week's time they reported that uh, violent crime rates have increased by 90%.
Okay, so you, violent crime is falling amidst the recession. Violent crime has been falling since um, the 1990s. So I think that that's sort of a bit of a, a problem in observing that state. Secondly, most conventional wisdom would say violent crime should go up amidst recession because people are out of work and they're desperate and so on and so forth. But this observation is actually true to, true to form, is that, well, when people are out trying to find a job, they don't have time to go about and, like, rob people. Um, so, and when everybody's sort of out of work, it's not really, who am I going to rob? Um, so, so both of those things are sort of counterbalancing one another. But the biggest thing that often gets pointed out is that, well, circa 1990, everybody thought that we were going to be like attacked by the Foot Clan from the Ninja Turtles, right? <laughs> what we noticed was that on average, criminals were younger and more violent than they had been in previous decades. Um, it was like... And people thought they were going to come of age to be 20-somethings, career criminals, and then they'd be replaced by a new crop of young, hardened criminals. But actually what ended up happening was that around 1990, crime started to decline. So some people look at that inverse trend and say, ah, prisons are working. But here's the kicker. Violent crime has been falling in other countries like Canada, Britain, um, and most of, uh, of the developed world in this same period. And... Most, and, and, and the thing which is also correlated with that is the decline in reported drug use and drug profits. So, uh, I mean, on economic terms, we're wasting a ton of money compared to these other countries that are enjoying criminal declines uh, amidst our uh, prison boom. Also, if you look at crime declines over a longer historical period from, say, the 1700s, you get systematic and continual decline and these, like, comparable... Uh, falls as we've had since the 1990s, but again, without massive surges in, in our criminal enforcement costs. So uh, I think any way you slice it, you can't make uh, an economically efficient argument for the way in which we, uh, like, if you were to say, uh, hold up a chart looking at expenditures, it looks comparably like a hockey stick. Um, like our, uh, our correctional budget is five times what, what it was then. Similarly with our, our police on the street budget. More questions? So, with deregulating drugs, like an example, I'm not supporting politics, but say this, but Ron Paul talks about like deregulation of drugs and stuff. What, do you think that would be effective economically for the prison system? I, I, think, um, I think ending the war on drugs would be a, a, a wonderful, immediate uh, resolution to the problems associated with inefficient law enforcement. However, the question is politically how we can get that. Um, I think that uh, like, it, which is to say that there is lots of financial and economic interests associated with the drug war, right? Um, which is part and parcel of how we've come to federalize the funding and administration of it. Um, so right now we have things like uh, civil asset forfeiture, which means that if you have over uh, about like a couple thousand dollars in cash on you, the, the police can confiscate it from you without actually charging you with anything um, uh, under the auspices that only drug dealers would have that much cash. And in, it's gotten to the point where in some states, when they pull over drug dealers who have lots of drugs and lots of cash, the cops say, take the cash and ignore the fact that they have lots of drugs. And so lots of people, uh, when talking about decriminalizing uh, drug use, want to say, oh, well, we could tax uh, things like marijuana and support our government. Well, the sad reality is that this already is a tax. The government is siphoning profits from the drug trade by means of the criminal justice system. Only unlike a tax, we don't get any democratic control over how those revenues get spent. Those revenues go right back into criminal law enforcement. So we get more guns, more squad cars, more tanks in some areas, uh, police dogs, Kevlar vests, etc. What we don't get with those funds is schools and roads and things that like, even the most ardent libertarian would say are better than cops and, and, and guns and squad cars. So I think that uh, just say uh, pointing to a legislative fix like uh, decriminalizing drugs doesn't get at the heart of the problem, which is... Uh, the notion that we have a monopolized criminal justice system by means of governmental authority. Uh, part of my other research is focused on this historical development. When is it that we get 
uh, a rise in unique criminal law as opposed to civil law. So a lot of what, um, what I focus on historically is uh, before we had governments delineating criminal laws, we had basically civil processes. Uh, individuals would sue each other when just as much as if you accidentally drive your car into someone's uh, uh, house and do damages, um, the civil process is very efficient at making sure that you spend resources comparable to the losses that you endure and um, that the rulings are responsive to social preferences about right and wrong and magnitude and proportionality. Um, whereas in the criminal realm, right, we get things like mandatory minimum sentencing, three strikes out. They're much more politicized sentencing outcomes. So uh, one scholar, John Hasness, is a business ethicist at Georgetown. He advocates that there's not much that the criminal justice system does that our civil system can't. And he advocates just a return to that process. That it's difficult to recognize how we could hope to empower the state with a monopoly rule enforcement on criminal law without opening up the incentives for things like the war on drugs. And that's the first thing that people notice, is that when you have a civil system, well, like, I can't sue you because you smoke a joint in your own house. Makes very, makes almost no sense. More questions? How are we doing on time, Alex? Okay. You mentioned that uh, prisoners come in isolated and separated from groups and so forth, but don't, aren't there prisoners that come in associated with gangs already and there's gangs inside the prison? So how do you isolate that from your data? Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, in large part, the American phenomenon of street gangs is a consequence of our growth in the American prison system. And you can witness this in the cultural forms that street gangs like express. Uh, the most common blue versus red as colors are remnant from the jumpsuits at the prison facilities where those gangs got started. Uh, in other words, when, again, they were right to be concerned about the social uh, cooperative effects of uh, grouping together all of the criminals of, of society. Because that's exactly what happened. Uh, we, we, there's economies of scale in cities. Jane Jacobs notices this, uh, that when you get all of the smart business people in the same place, they share ideas. Well, when you get all of the, like, drug dealers and, 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 and bootleggers together, they share best practices. They cooperate with one another uh, and, in turn, uh, develop new business models and new product offerings. Uh, in large part, things like methamphetamine, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the arms trade, uh, the, the black market for, for guns and weaponry in the United States, arguably would not exist if it weren't for uh, the prison system that we have. More Q&A? Well, it's been great to be here, guys. Thanks so much for attending. <laughs>